We're going to continue on in our series, uh, Friends, Family, and Foes. If I have not had the chance to meet you, my name is Brent. I get to serve as um, one of our pastors here on staff. Um, two weeks ago, Pastor Preston absolutely crushed it, did a phenomenal message on David as it relates to slaying our giants. And David's, of course, was Goliath. Pastor Tim last week did an awesome job on walking us through the life of Saul and helping us to identify uh, the Sauls in our lives. And just in case this is your first week for the series, we're basically looking at the life of David, but through the perspective of the people who are in his life. And now I gotta be honest with you, I absolutely love David. David, here's why I love him so much. David is the only man in scripture who gets this title of being a man after God's own heart. Not only that, I love David because David has provided for us so many songs that we sing today. Truth of the matter is, if the Grammys was around, he would put Michael Jackson and Beyonce to shame. I mean, fantastic songwriter. In addition to that, David's got all of these heroic acts between slaying the giant Goliath and winning all these wars. He's a great man. But there's one thing about David's life that we don't like to talk about in church for some reason or another. And here's the thing, if I'm being honest with you, I'd have to say that when I read the text, one of the things I discover about David's life that is so disappointing is that David was a horrible father. Some of you are like, what? Let me explain. He's got one son. I mean, he knocked it out of the park with that son. His name was Solomon. He goes down in history as the wisest man in the world to have ever lived. But David has three other children. He has many more than that. He was a rolling stone. Bless his heart, as the temptations would say. Um, but he's got three children in particular. Absalom, Amnon, and Tamar. The story is found in 2 Samuel chapter 13. And we're going to look at this narrative about the life of David and how he dropped the ball I'm being a really good father. Now, let me also say, the narrative that we're getting ready to read, is, I would say it's rated M for mature. For those of you who may be new to Christianity, and new to Jesus, and new to church, let me tell you right now, there are some narratives in this Bible that will put Netflix and Prime Video to shame, okay? <laughs> This is one of those narratives. It's full of all the drama and stuff that you want to watch on TV. With that being said, if you have young children who are in the room and you're not ready for them to hear this narrative because this narrative has some sexual content involved in it and it gets a little violent, I'd encourage you while I pray, you have my 100% permission to stand up, take your children out of the room, go into children's ministry. That's where my nine-year-old son is. My wife and I talked about it this morning. He's not ready for this type of conversation yet. So you have my permission, you have my support. With that being said, let me calibrate you. Today is going to be a hard conversation. But here's what I also know, it's going to be okay because his presence is in the room and there's grace for this conversation. But I also know I'd be a fool to think I can sit up here and preach this message without asking the Holy Spirit to give me some help. So real quick, would you join me in a word of prayer? Holy Spirit, thank you so much. Whew for the opportunity to stand and to proclaim your word. In this moment, I decrease and ask that you would increase. Hide me behind the cross. Let them not see me, but let them only see you. Would you let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight? And here's my prayer, Holy Spirit. Would you go up and down each and every aisle and begin to individually minister to the hearts and minds of the people that are sitting in this room 
and also go beyond this room and start to touch the hearts and minds of the people who might be watching online. And I pray that today would be a day that begins for some complete and total freedom and healing from the things that have taken place in our past. Lord, I thank you. I bless you. I praise you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray and give thanks. And everybody said, amen. amen. If you have your Bible, turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter number 13. I'm going to begin at verse number 1. And I am going to end up reading the entire chapter really quick. I know some of you saying, dang, Pastor Brent, Tim just came in here and read like all 66 books of the Bible last week. Why you got to read so much scripture? Here's why we love to read so much scripture. I don't want you to just fall in love with church. I want you to fall in love with the word. And the more you read it, the more you'll start to fall in love with it. So we're going to read 2 Samuel chapter 13 and then some, and it's going to be good. So here it is, 2 Samuel chapter 13, New Living Translation, beginning at verse number one. Here's what it says. Now David's son Absalom had a beautiful sister named Tamar, and Amnon, her half-brother, fell desperately in love with her. Amnon became so obsessed with Tamar that he became ill. She was a virgin, and Amnon thought he could never have her. But Amnon had a very crafty friend, his cousin, Jonadab. He was the son of David's brother, Shemaim. One day, Jonadab said to uh, Amnon, what's the trouble? Why should the son of a king look so dejected morning after morning? So Amnon told him, cousin, I'm in love with Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. Well, Jonadab said, I'll tell you what to do. Go back to bed and pretend you are ill. When your father comes to see you, ask him to let Tamar come and prepare some food for you. Tell him you'll feel better if she prepares it as you watch and feeds you with her own hands. So Amnon lay down and pretended to be sick. And when the king came to see him, Amnon asked him, please let my sister Tamar come and cook my favorite dish as I watch. Then I can eat it from her own hands. So David agreed and sent Tamar to Amnon's house to prepare some food for him. When Tamar arrived at Amnon's house, she went to the place where he was lying down so he could watch her mix some dough. Then she baked his favorite dish for him. But when she set the serving tray before him, he refused to eat. Everyone get out of here, Amnon told his servants. So they all left. Then he said to Tamar, sister, bring the food into my bedroom and feed it to me here. So Tamar took his favorite dish to him. But as she was feeding him, he grabbed her and demanded, Come to bed with me, my darling sister. No, my brother, she cried. Don't be foolish. Don't do this to me. Such wicked things aren't done in Israel. Where could I go in my shame? And you will be called one of the greatest fools in Israel. Please, just speak to the king about it, and he will let you marry me. But Amnon wouldn't listen to her. And since he was stronger than she was, he raped her. Then suddenly Amnon's love turned to hate. And he hated her even more than he had loved her. Get out of here, he snarled at her. No, no, Tamar cried. Sending me away now is worse than what you've already done to me. But Amnon wouldn't listen to her. He shouted for his servant and demanded, throw this woman out and lock the door behind her. So the servant put her out and locked the door behind her. She was wearing a long, beautiful robe, as was the custom in those days for the king's virgin's daughters. But now Tamar tore her robe and put ashes on her head. And then with her face in her hands, she went 
away crying. Her brother Absalom saw her and asked, Is it true that Amnon has been with you? Well, my sister, keep quiet for now, since he's your brother. Don't you worry about it. So Tamar lived as a desolate woman in her brother Absalom's house. When King David heard what had happened, he was very angry. And though Absalom never spoke to Amnon about this, he hated Amnon deeply because of what he had done to his sister. Two years later, when Absalom's sheep were being sheared at Belhazor near Ephraim, Absalom invited all the king's sons to come to a feast. And like any good movie, we'll leave the cliffhanger there. Y'all, as I was reading the text, and I've been a believer now for 20 years, and I have read this narrative I don't know how many times, there was something in this narrative that I finally noticed that I have not seen before. Typically, when I've read this text, I've always thought that the timeline was essentially that Amnon does this horrific, terroristic, awful act, and a few weeks later, Absalom begins to try and get his revenge. This week was the first time I noticed that there was a two-year gap between the terroristic act of what Amnon did and from the time when Absalom tries to begin to get his revenge. And as I was reading the text, the Holy Spirit gave me one thought, and this is my message title. Don't let it stew. Don't let it stew. Here's the truth. The truth is, is that you and I can go through traumatic experiences, and they may not be as traumatic as what Tamar had to go through and Absalom had to go through and David had to go through. But there are many of us in this room who have gone through some things and have been upset with some people and angry with some people and disappointed with some people. And instead of trying to deal with it head on, here's what we end up doing. We sit and we let it stew and we let it stew and we let it stew. And as I was sitting there reading the text, there were so many red flags that just popped off the page to me. After the act, the first red flag that pops off the page to me is the absolutely awful advice that Absalom gives his sister Tamar. Absalom walks into Tamar's room. Tamar is sitting there, eyes swollen, bloodshot, red, crying, feeling horrible. As I get it, I understand it. And Absalom comes into the room, and here's what he tells his sister. Shh. Don't tell anything or tell anyone about what happened. But Absalom, here's the problem. Essentially what you're telling her is, is to be silent and suffer. And if she continues to sit there silently, there's not going to be a process for her to be able to heal. But then Absalom, here's the thing that you're doing. You walking around mad and you're stewing and you're stewing and you're stewing and you're not dealing with what happened. But then here's the other crux of it. David is angry as well, as he should be. But my question to David is, David, what are you actually doing about what happened? Here's what I see in the text. I see a whole family sitting here having an issue, an issue that's traumatic, and nobody's dealing with it. Which leads me to my very first point. 
If you don't deal with it, the enemy will use it to destroy you. I'll say it again. If you don't deal with it, the enemy will use it to destroy you. One of the worst things that you and I can do when trauma happens or something tragic happens in our lives is to sit silently and suffer. It's the exact thing that the enemy wants to do. And as I was preparing this text, I was just imagining, what if I had the opportunity to be David's pastor? What would I say to David when he comes into my office and he starts venting to me and telling me about what happened with his family? Go with me just for a moment and just imagine that David comes and he visits Pillar Church. And I get to sit there and he comes into the office and he sits down and he's got his royal regalia. And he's telling me about all the stuff that happened with his children. And then after I sit David down, here's what I would tell David. I said, David, number one, because God is with you, you and your family are going to be able to get through this. But there's a couple things that we got to do. Number one, you're going to have to have a conversation with all three of your kids. But before I start this conversation with all three of your kids and give you wise counsel on how you talk to your kids, David, I first need to give you wise counsel about yourself. Here's the thing that you need to know, David. Now more than ever, your kids absolutely need you. And here's what I want to encourage you to do, David. I want to encourage you to be a better father than your father was to you. Pastor Brent, what are you talking about? I'm glad you asked, David. Here's what I'm talking about. I remember when you came into my office and you vented to me about how when Samuel came and he had this big ceremony, he invited all your other brothers to the ceremony, but he left you out there alone and didn't include you in. David, I'm not a psychologist, but I do have common sense. And here's what my gut tells me. My gut tells me that's probably not the first time your dad left you out of something. <laughs> David, I would imagine that while you were out there tending to the sheep, there were probably moments in your life where you were longing for your father's affirmation, where you were longing for him to tell, him, tell you that he was proud of you, that he loved you. And unfortunately, here's what happened. While your father was present in your life, you never felt his presence. He was physically there, but as far as emotionally, relationally, spiritually, he was an absentee father. And David, I don't want you to make the same mistake that your dad made with you. It's not good enough for you to just live at the address. You've got to be present in the address with your emotions and your feelings and all the things. And here's what I want you to do. I want you to start with Tamar. When you leave this office, I want you to go to Tamar's room and I want you to have a conversation with her. And here's what I want you to do in this conversation. The first thing that I need you to do, David, is I just need you to sit with Tamar. I need you to empathize with Tamar. Let Tamar know that you see her, that you feel her pain, that you, that you are grieving with her, that you are heartbroken that this has happened to her. And let her take the lead. David, if she tells you, Daddy, I need space, give her space. If she says, Daddy, I need a hug, give her a hug. But at some point, David, along this journey, here's what I also need you to tell Tamar. I need you to tell Tamar that this experience does not define her. I need you to tell Tamar that she serves a God who can redeem and who can restore her story and her life. You remind her who her God is, David. 
And after you have this conversation with Tamar, there's a second conversation you're going to have. In this conversation, you're not going to like this one, David. You're going to have to have a conversation with Absalom. Now, when you have the conversation with Absalom, let's paint the picture, David. I need you to see this. Your son is stewing. He is mad. He is angry. And I would guess he's probably plotting to try to figure out how he could get revenge. David, here's what I want you to tell Absalom. Look at him in his eyes and say, son, I need you to hear me. Revenge is not the goal. Forgiveness is. Son, revenge is not the goal. Forgiveness is. And then I need you to tell him this, David. I need you to look at him square in his eyes and say, Absalom, I make zero excuses for what your brother Amnon did. And with that said, I need to take ownership and why Amnon is acting the way he's acting. And the reason why I need to take ownership is because all your brother did was model after me. I know you guys have heard the whispers. Let me put the whispers to silence and let me tell you about how I've been a bad model for you. See, one day when I was supposed to be out in the field with my soldiers, I was at home and Absalom, there was this woman who was bathing on her rooftop, privately minding her own business. Her name was Bathsheba. And because I was in this dark place, because I wasn't spending time in the presence of the Lord, because I wasn't guarding my heart, as Proverbs says, I let my flesh get in the way. And I knew this woman was married. And here's the worst part. She was married to a friend of mine. He served in my military. His name was Uriah. I saw this woman. I took this woman. I invited her to the palace. I slept with this woman, and I got this woman pregnant. And then, because I didn't want to be looked at as shameful because I got this married woman pregnant, I tried to cover it up. I tried to get her husband, my friend Uriah, to sleep with her. He wouldn't sleep with her. And after three or four different attempts, here's what I ended up doing. I had an innocent man killed. The reason why I'm telling you this, Absalom, is because I'm not taking necessarily saying that you should give Amnon a pass on what he did, but part of the reason why Amnon is having this experience, did this horrible, God-awful thing, is because he, he saw me do the same thing. And it's my responsibility as a man to where I'm now trying to break some of the habits in our family. I mean, let's just be honest. I didn't even think about this before, but we, we just come from a dysfunctional family. I'm going to have to have a conversation with my, my brother Shemaiah because he, he ain't got his son Jonadab together. Because Jonadab is the one who messed around and gave Amnon this stupid idea. But for, day, for today, I've got to deal with our house. So please, the goal, son, is not revenge. The goal is forgiveness. David, that's what you got to tell Absalom. But then, David, you got one more conversation. You're not going to like this conversation either. You got to have a conversation with Amnon. One of the reasons why this convo with Amnon is going to be so hard is because I know that you are angry with Amnon, as you should be. But let me say, David, as a pastor, seminary does not train me for these type of situations. So here's what I did, David. I reached out to a friend of mine, a friend of mine who has a story very similar to Tamar's. And the reason why, David, I can look at you in the eye and tell you that when you go to Tamar, that God's going to redeem her story, the reason why I can say that is because God redeemed my friend's story. 
She had a situation just like Tamar. She eventually, she gave her life to Jesus. She worked in ministry for 10 years, and now she works for the state of Arizona in social services, spending every day as a ministry, rescuing the lives of young men and young women who have been in households that are dysfunctional like yours. So I reached out to my friend, and I said to my friend, if there's anything, friend, that you would say to Amnon, what would it be? And here's what my friend said, David. She said, I don't think it would be a statement. It would be a question. I would genuinely ask him why he thinks he did it and also ask him how he feels. Sitting in the uncomfortable isn't only for the victimized, but also for the perpetrator. It's easy to forget that perpetrators tend to be tormented people. It's a vicious cycle. That same grace and mercy of sitting is for them too. It's just followed by accountability and tools to free them from the torment. David, here's what you got to do. As much as you don't want to do it, you've got to give Amnon grace. You've got to give Amnon grace. At some point, you're going to have to forgive Amnon. Now, David, here's what I need you to do. I need you to calibrate, though, with your kids that just because all of you are going to forgive Amnon, it doesn't mean you all are going to be reconciled back with Amnon. You can forgive and not have reconciliation. David, can I teach you why this is important that you can forgive? Here's what Jesus says to his disciples. They ask, how many times should we forgive our brother if he offends us? Seven times? And you know what Jesus said? No, 70 times seven. Here's the translation. Forgiveness is mandatory, David. But here's what I know. Reconciliation is optional. I can forgive you and keep space. How can I forgive and keep space, Pastor Brent? Here's how I know, David. There's another text. I think it's over in 1 Peter uh, where Paul says, if your brother offends you, go to them. If that doesn't work, Go to them a second time, but bring two or three witnesses. If that doesn't work, you go to them a third time, but this time get the church involved. And if that doesn't work, may the Lord watch between me and thee. You can forgive without having to have the process of reconciliation. Now, David, I need you to go home, and I need you to go talk to all your kids. Y'all, I wish that that's how the story ended. Unfortunately, that's not how it ends. So the question becomes, how does the story end? Let's pick up verse 23. Again, 23. Two years later, when Absalom's sheep were being sheared at Belhazor near Ephraim, Absalom invited all the king's sons to come to a feast. He went to the king and said, my sheep shearers are now at work. Will the king and his servants please come to celebrate the occasion with me? The king replied, no, my son. If we all came, we would be too much of a burden on you. Absalom pressed him. But the king would not come, though he gave Absalom his blessing. Well then, Absalom said, if you can't come, how about sending my brother Amnon with us? Why Amnon? The king asked. But Absalom kept on pressing the king until he finally agreed to let all his sons attend, including Amnon. So Absalom prepared a feast fit for a king. Absalom told his men, wait until Amnon gets drunk. Then at my signal, kill him. Don't be afraid. I'm the one who has given the command, take courage and do it. 
So at Absalom's signal, they murdered Amnon. Then the other sons of the king jumped on their mules and fled. As they were on their way back to Jerusalem, this report reached David. Absalom has killed this report. Absalom has killed all the king's sons. Not one is left alive. The king got up, tore his robe, and threw himself on the ground. His advisors also tore their clothes in horror and sorrow. But just then, Jonadab, the son of David's brother Shemaiah, arrived and said, No, don't believe that all the king's sons have been killed. It was only Amnon. Absalom has been plotting this ever since Amnon raped his sister Tamar. I want to pause really quickly, and just for a moment, I want to speak to the Absaloms in the room. God has never called you and I to plot against our enemies. He's only called us to pray for our enemies. And Absalom, here's what I need you to hear. Scripture teaches that vengeance is mine, says the Lord. He never said vengeance was yours. Here's why I want to encourage you, Absalom, to pray for your enemies, because I've come to discover that it is very difficult to hate people that you're praying for. I thought somebody would have said amen, but that's all right. I'm, I'm going to get an amen at some point in this message. But it is, it's, it's very hard to hate the people that you're praying for. This is why... The more you pray, the sooner you'll be able to forgive. But if you continue to let it stew and to fester and to plot, that's not hurting the person that you're festering against. It's actually hurting you. Because here's the problem. You're stewing not even realizing that you're stuck in bondage. The longer you stew, the longer you'll be bound. But the moment you forgive is the moment you'll be free. So thank you, brother. I appreciate that. <laughs> so now let's look at the rest of the text. Here's what it says. Verse 33. No, my lord, the king, your sons aren't all dead. It was only Amnon. Meanwhile, Absalom escaped. Then the watchman on the Jerusalem wall saw a great crowd coming down the hill on the road from the west. He ran to tell the king, I see a crowd of people coming from the Hurnam road along the side of the hill. Look, Jonadab told the king, there they are now. The king's sons are coming, just as I said. They soon arrived, weeping and sobbing, and the king and all his servants wept bitterly with them. And David mourned many days for his son Amnon. Absalom fled to his grandfather, Talma, son of Amihud, the king of Geshur. He stayed there in Geshur, watch this, y'all, for three years. And King David, now reconciled to Amnon's death, Long to be reunited with his son, Absalom. So again, going back to the timeline, you have this horrendous act that took place with Amnon and Tamar. And then after that, Absalom, two years later, gets his revenge. But then he leaves to go live with his grandfather. And he's gone for a total of three years. And the text lets us know that David longs to be reconciled and reunited with his son, Absalom. And the question that I'm wrestling with in the text is, is David, why don't you just go get him? If you long to be in a relationship with him that badly, why don't you just go get him? Here's the crazy part. David doesn't even go get his son. 
Joab hears about David wanting to be reconciled to Absalom, says, okay, I'm going to try to make this family reunion happen, and here's how I'm going to make it happen. And you can go read about it in chapter 14. We just don't have time today. Joab goes and gets this woman, and he tells this woman to go and tell David a very specific story because Joab understands that if David catches the heart of the story, it's going to pull on his heartstrings, and it's going to make him change his mind, and maybe he'll get reconciled back to his son. So here's what the woman comes in and says. The woman comes in, looks at David, and says, oh, king, oh, king, listen, I'm a mother and I have two sons. One of my sons killed my other son. I've lost one son, but I want to be reconciled to the other. What should I do? And David in his self-righteousness says, oh, daughter, don't worry about it. I'm going to put all of my might behind you as king and make sure that you get reconciled to your son. And then the woman says, oh, thank you so much, my king. But quick question, why you ain't doing that for your own family? David then realizes that this woman couldn't have known this on her own and picks up on the fact that Joab put her up to this. So he calls in Joab, and I want you to see what David does next. And this is the one part of the text, y'all, that really had me angry. So here it is, verse 22 in chapter number 14, 2 Samuel. Watch this. Joab bowed with his face to the ground in deep respect and said, At last, I know that I've gained your approval, my lord the king, for you have granted me this request. Then Joab went to Geshur and brought Absalom back to Jerusalem. But the king gave this order after he's been gone three years. No connection with the son. This is the order that you give, David. Absalom may go to his own house, but he must never come into my presence. So Absalom did not see the king. Let's keep reading. Verse 25. Now Absalom was praised as the most handsome man in all Israel. He was flawless from head to toe. Side note, as I was laying in bed last night, I thought to myself, this is a whole bunch of good-looking people in this narrative. They talk about David looking good. They talk about Saul looking good, not Absalom. This man flawless. Lord, have mercy. Okay. <laughs> Text goes on to say, he cut his hair only once a year and then only because it was so heavy. When he weighed it out, it came to five pounds. 27, he had three sons and one daughter. His daughter's name was Tamar, and she was very beautiful. Verse 28, Absalom lived in Jerusalem for two years but he never got to see the king. If you're tracking along with the math, we've now got a five-year period after the traumatic experience happens to where Absalom has not had the chance to speak with his father. What y'all think he was doing in these past five years? Stewing. Stewing. And here's the problem. David, you want to be reconciled to him. And this is why I got so upset with David. Here's why I got so upset with David. David... After you mess up with Bathsheba and Uriah, you write one of the greatest psalms on repentance that's ever written. It's Psalms 51. Here's what you write, David. You say, creating me a clean heart, O God, ever knew a right spirit from me. But then you say, cast me not from your presence. Please don't take your Holy Spirit from me. David, you hypocrite. How could you sit there and beg God not to cast you from his presence, but you cast your own son? Here's the problem with David. Let me take a moment and speak to some of the Davids in the room. I never want you to be so spiritually strong, yet you're relationally weak. This is what we see with David. David can write the Psalms. David can lead the army. David can pray the paint off the wall. But David don't know how to be a daddy. David doesn't know how to do life with people. David could provide, but he don't know how to give a hug. He could slay, he could slay Goliath, 
but he doesn't know how to give you a shoulder to cry on. Here's the truth, Pillar. I know we are a very spiritual, strong church, and I don't think Pastor Preston would mind me saying this. Here's what I also believe. I believe that the Lord wants to send men and women and children and families in this place who have been through some drama and trauma. And here's what I know. I know we can pray them through, but can we love them through? Can we hug them through? Can we coffee them through? Can we invite them over to our house through? Can we take time and sit with them through? We can't be a people that's spiritually strong, but yet relationally weak. That's not how we roll. And this is the problem that I have with David. Your boy hasn't seen you in five years. Let me just put it out here. Here's my biggest issue with David. David, you were so busy doing the work of the Lord that you failed taking care of your home. Here's what you did, David. You allowed your profession to become so important to you that you sacrificed your children on the altar. You chased the title, you chased the gold, you chased the money, you chased the women, you chased it all, and they needed you. To all the dads in the room, to all the moms in the room who may be single moms, you might be a David or a Davida. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. <laughs> I want to encourage you. Outside of your relationship with Jesus, there is nothing more important than the relationship that you have with your family. Don't you ever choose a career over your family. Don't you ever choose status over your family. Jesus, then family, then church. Very personal, real quick. I'm going to throw this in here. I didn't plan on saying it. I remember when my wife and I were going through a difficult time. I was being shepherded by my senior pastor at the time from Sweet Home Missionary Baptist Church. Shout out to Pastor Theo Johnson. My wife and I thought we were about to get a divorce. And here's what Theo asked me. He said, Brent, what's more important to you, your family or your ministry? And like a young fool, here's what I said, my ministry. God graced me three years later, and I stand today and tell you right now, I will throw this title as a teaching pastor away to make sure I take care of my family first. Family first. So watch this. So how does the rest of the story end? Let's cut across the field real quick. So Absalom wants to have a conversation with his father. He just wants to be in relationship with his daddy. And here's the worst part. He has to communicate through Joab to even get a meeting with his daddy. So he calls Joab two times, three times, four times, five times, six times, seven times. Joab don't respond. Absalom already unhealthy. So to get Joab's attention, here's what Absalom does. He just burned the whole man house down. I mean, he just got gasoline, got a match. I'm burning it all down. Joab come over. Hey, man, why you burned down my house? Because I called you 10 times. You ain't answer. I just burned down the house. So here it is. Joab finally comes up. Man, what do you need? I want to talk to my daddy. So he gets his meeting with his father. And here's all we know that the text says. The text just simply tells us that when Absalom walks in, he bows down before his dad. He gets up and his father gives him a kiss on the forehead. And that's all it says. Here's what I would guess. I would guess that when Absalom came to see David, David never told his son sorry. I'm sorry for bringing you back home and not speaking to you. 
I'm sorry for the way that I've dropped the ball over these past five years as a dad. The truth of the matter is, is maybe some of us as parents need to go back to whether they're our adult kids or our young kids and tell them, I'm sorry. Because Absalom never got his sorry, he leaves David's presence, a whole nother four years goes by. And in that four-year time period, so now if we do the math, if my math is correct, we had nine years. Hopefully my math is math and I ain't do good in math class. But now we're at nine years. And in this four-year window, you know what Absalom's doing? Thank you, stewing. Y'all catch it, amen, bless your heart. He's stewing, he's stewing. So here's what happens. People in the Israel kingdom, they're coming. They're supposed to go see David. They end up seeing Absalom. He's kissing him on the foreheads. He's winning hearts. He's winning hearts. He takes four years to win hearts, gets up his own little army. Then he overthrows David on the throne. David now goes on the run. He is trying to save his own life. When Absalom gets into the palace, David had left 10 of his concubines behind, a.k.a. 10 of his wives. And here's what Absalom does. To embarrass his father, he goes to the rooftop of the palace and sleeps with all of 10 of David's concubines. Absalom, come here. You just became exactly what you hated. You hated Amnon for doing what he did to Tamar. You hated your daddy for doing what he did with Bathsheba. Now you're no different. Here's the problem when you let things stew. Now you can't even see your own flaws. If you don't deal with it, the enemy will use it to destroy you. So now the question becomes, how does the story end? We're going to crawl across the field, 2 Samuel chapter number 18. Let me set it up for you real quick. So uh, Absalom is in pursuit of his dad. His dad gets away. Eventually, um, Joab knows where Absalom is, and now the tables have turned. So now David and Joab and his military is in pursuit of Absalom. They have him in a corner. David tells his boys, Joab, and the entire military, hey, when you see Absalom, spare his life. So what happens? 2 Samuel chapter 18, I'm going to pick up at verse number 24. While David was sitting between the inner and outer gates of the town, the watchman climbed to the roof of the gateway by the wall. As he looked, he saw a lone man running toward them. He shouted the news down to David, and the king replied, if he is alone, he has news. As the messenger came closer, the watchman saw another man running toward them. He shouted down, here comes another one. The king replied, he also will have news. The first man runs like Amaz, son of Zadok. The watchman said, oh, he's a good man. It comes with good news, the king replied. Then Amaz cried out to the king, everything is all right, your highness. He bowed before the king with his face to the ground and said, praise to the Lord your God who has handed over the rebels who dared to stand against my lord, the king. What about Absalom? The king demanded. Is he all right? Ahimaaz replied, when Joab told me to come, there was a lot of commotion, but I didn't know what was happening. Wait here, the king told him. So Ahimaaz stepped aside. Then the man from Ethiopia arrived and said, I have good news for my lord, the king. Today, the Lord has rescued you from all those who rebelled against you. What about Absalom? The king demanded. Is he all right? And the Ethiopian replied, 
May all of your enemies, my lord, the king, both now and in the future, share the fate of that young man. And the king was overcome with emotion. He went up to the room over the gateway and burst into tears. And as he went, he cried, Oh, my son, Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom, if only I had died instead of you. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. Narrative ends with David having to live with the fact that he has a daughter who will spend the rest of her life as a desolate woman. He has two sons, one killed the other, and the other was killed by his men. And all of this happens in part because they never dealt with it. And because they never dealt with it, the enemy used it to destroy them. Pillar, as it relates to our families, I don't want the enemy to use anything to destroy ours. Today was a message specifically for families. And here's what I wanna do. You may be here today and you listen to the narrative and you said, oh, I can, I can relate to Tabar. And here's the truth, and I'm not trying to be funny. Here's the truth. You may not be a Tamar, you may be a Tommy. You listened and said, hey, I can relate to Absalom. And you may not be an Absalom, you may be an Amber. Or I can relate to David. And you may, may you're a David or you're a Davida. And then, let's just be honest, I'm actually grateful for it. There are some of you here in the room, and you may be the Amnon. But like my friend said, the same grace that applies to the other three, that grace also applies to you. And here's what I wanna do. I wanna pray for you. So if you're here in this room and you say, I can relate to one of those four persons, I just wanna invite you to stand right where you are and after you stand, I'm gonna pray for you. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you, thank you, I see you all the way in the back. Thank you, thank you, I see you all the way in the back. Thank you, thank you. If you gotta stand, stand, don't be ashamed because here's the deal, only the Lord knows which person you're standing in representation of. Thank you, thank you. I was praying this week and as I was touching the pews, this was my prayer, God, would you give healing? Would you give freedom? Anyone else, thank you, thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Now, for those of you who are sitting and it's still not too late to stand, if you need to stand, just stand. For those of you who are sitting, would you do me a huge favor? And if there's someone around you that's standing, would you just place your hand on them? And if there's no one close to you that's standing, would you just stretch your hands towards the others that are standing? Because I believe that when the church prays together, we get to see the power of the Holy Spirit move. And if you still need to stay and you got time.
Church, let's pray. Holy Spirit, I thank you so much, and would you lead and guide this prayer? But Holy Spirit, I thank you so much for being our advocate, for being our helper. I thank you for being our banner, for being Jehovah Nissi, our victory. And in general, I want to stand and I want to pray for every single person that's standing. God, I thank you that no matter what they've been through, no matter what they've experienced, no matter what they've gone through, that you have declared them to be more than a conqueror in Christ Jesus. And here's the truth of the matter. The enemy is going to try to intimidate us. The enemy is going to try to make us feel like we're defeated. But here's what we declare. On Christ, the solid rock, we stand. He is our firm foundation. And we recognize that all other ground is sinking sand. I want to take a moment and I want to pray for the Tamars in this room, whether they be male or female. Lord, here's my prayer. Would you begin to heal Tamar? Would you begin to remind her that you are the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. You're the one with the pen that is the author and the finisher of our faith. And because you are the one that is the author and the finisher of our faith, the story already lets us know that we end this thing in complete and total victory. Lord, I pray that you will begin to redeem and restore Tamar's story. Would you allow the Tamar that's standing in this room to get to a place to where she can forgive her Amnon, to where she can let it go. And I pray, God, that you would just give her an increase of your love, an increase of your grace, an increase of your mercy. Would you overwhelm her with your presence? But not only that, would you send strong women around her? And if it's a male, strong men around him that would hold him up just as Aaron and her did for Moses that would be there for them in the battle, that they would have friends that would fight with them in the face of the enemy in Jesus' name. Then, God, I pray for Absalom. Absalom who is angry, Absalom who is bitter, Absalom who is stewing. This is what I pray for Absalom, God, that you would touch Absalom's heart in such a way that he would surrender. That he would surrender completely and totally to you that he would find it within his heart. And would you do, Holy Spirit, open heart surgery on the Absalons in the room, whether they be male or female, and remind them that revenge is not the goal, but that forgiveness is the goal. This is what I pray. I pray that they would replace that hate that they have for Amnon with the love that they're receiving from you. And God, I want to pray for Amnon. I thank you that it is not too late for Amnon. For the Amnon that was bold enough to stand up, I thank you that the same blood you shed on Calvary for everybody else you also shed for Amnon. I pray that Amnon would take ownership in what he did, that he would go and seek forgiveness to those in whom he has offended. But I also thank you, God, that you have already forgiven Amnon. And there are not scriptures in the Bible that Amnon cannot have access to. Here's the truth of the matter. Amnon also has access to the passage that says, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer, God. If Amnon doesn't know you, I pray that he would come to know you. And as one of the shepherds in this house, I stand in the gap on behalf of all of the Tamars and the Absalons in this room, and I pray for Amnon. God, would you shower your love upon Amnon? Would you shower your grace upon Amnon? Would you shower your mercy upon Amnon? Would you allow Amnon to experience freedom like he has never experienced freedom before? And then lastly, God, I want to pray for the Davids in the room. God, if we've missed the mark on being good dads, if we've missed the mark on being good moms, Lord, I thank you that you are a God who can redeem and a God who can restore. 
Would you give us the words to say to go back and, and realize and figure out how we can reconcile if that's what you're calling us to do? Would you give us the strength to be able to apologize if we've messed up? Would you allow us to be able to be self-present and self-reflective and own the mistakes that we've made as parents? And I pray that you would allow us to be the better parts of what our parents were, not to us. As a matter of fact, I even prayed that for the Davids that are standing up in the room, that we would even be able to forgive our fathers or mothers who missed the mark with us. And that we won't miss the mark with our kids. And lastly, Holy Spirit, I want to take a moment. I want to pray for every single pillar family that is represented in this house. I pray that no weapon formed against our families will be able to prosper. I pray that no weapons formed against the future families in this house will be able to prosper. I pray that we would raise generation after generation after generation that would know and that would call upon the name of Jesus, that our young men shall dream dreams and our old men shall prophesy, but all of us will be a part of God's kingdom. I pray that you would raise up patriarchs and matriarchs that would set up spiritual pillars for generations to come. I pray that you would use our young men and our young women as weapons of mass destruction to destroy the kingdom of darkness. I pray that we would have families to where we can be open with each other and honest with each other and love one another and not tear one another apart. I pray that we would have families who could come to the dinner table and have moments of true repentance. Lord, I thank you that the families in this church are strong. And we stand in the enemy's face and we say, if God be for us, who in the world can be against us? For we are more than conquerors in Christ Jesus. Today is the day where as pillar people, we are victorious. We wave the banner of victory in front of Satan and his imps. We take back everything the enemy has stolen from us. So we receive healing. We receive grace. We receive mercy. We receive your love. And Father, whatever I failed in asking in this prayer, Holy Spirit, I pray that you do not fail in granting. Thank you for sitting with us in the heart. And we'll forever give you the glory, the honor, and the praise. And it's in Jesus' name we pray and give thanks. And everybody said, amen.